The following episode is part of an ongoing series on the history of science and the Ottoman Empire, curated by Nir Shafir and available for download on iTunes, Hipcast, and SoundCloud. Check out the series tab on our website to learn more about this and other series, available only through ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This is our latest installment in a series of podcasts that deal with issues regarding the history of science. We open it up with a historiographical inquiry into the history of science with uh, Nir Shafir, Sam Dolby, and Ariane Arus that also fed into a discussion on where the field of history of science in the Ottoman Empire in the Islamic world is today and so the directions we can take it. We've also featured an episode on Ottoman engagement with the Enlightenment and talked a little bit about the uh, you know sociocultural context of the exchange of uh, knowledge. Today we're in a similar field. We're going to be talking about the relationship between technology and social power, which is to say we're going to talk about technology transfers, but we're not going to focus so much on the mechanisms of transfer, but rather the uh, social purchase and cultural capital that is embedded in new and novel technologies. Our guest today is Daniel Pontillo, a doctoral student at University of Rochester's Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences. Some of Dan's research outside of the field of cognitive sciences and linguistics deals with the study of how technology is transferred and perceived in a social context. Dan, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. So for those who have clicked and ended up here, they, they probably know the title of our podcast today, Across Anatolia on a Bicycle. And we're going to be talking about the journey of two American uh, men from the late 19th century and their account of traveling across Anatolia, or you know, actually all of Asia, uh, on bicycles. And we'll mention from the outset that we have a lot of great images uh, from this work, which we will be analyzing and viewing during the podcast, which are available on our website, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com. So along with the discussion of how science and technology are associated with certain levels of social capital, I'm also interested in what the conditions are that license an individual, for example, to possess or wield authority over a technology by virtue of their group membership or uh, inclusion in a society or a group. I mean, that statement, if we can talk a little generally before getting in the book, it reminds us of some of the public discourses, for example, during the Cold War regarding space race, for example, how Americans take pride in the technological achievements of their country, which they have nothing to do with. They've. It's not as if every American went to outer space or landed on the moon, but the technological achievement of uh, the United States vis-a-vis a perceived uh, political enemy was sort of a cause for celebration for all. So to move into our discussion of bicycles, which today we are, I feel like we're in the midst of another bicycle boom, at least in the United States. I mean, we rode our bikes over here today, and uh, yeah. biking has definitely increased in American cities, although... There's, a, there's certainly a resurgence of the notion that bikes are not a children's toy. They're uh, for adults, for transportation. Mm-hmm. They're legitimate source of mobility for in cities Uh and urban environments and this is in part it has to do with like green consciousness uh, as well like the and we see states 
boosting their funding for biking infrastructure gradually, but still we see progress. And and this is not the first time this has happened in history with bicycles. Bicycles have had this kind of parabolic uh, a rise and fall over time. And we're going to be talking about really the first big bicycle boom or bicycle craze that really a, a period during which the quote unquote modern form of the bicycle that we have today really took shape and during the, the 1890s. So we've all seen historical photos of these bicycles with large front wheels and small back wheels, a man perched on top of an elevated seat. We can all imagine how difficult and dangerous it would be to ride one of these um, just by virtue of the danger of falling off because you're elevated. One of the crucial technological achievements that allowed bikes to become a popular and practical mode of transportation was the safety bike. In the late 19th century, the application of chain drive transmission to the design of bikes allowed for the reduction in that wheel size and hence the ability to have a lower seat, which simply enough allows you to have your feet close to the ground. And they called this the safety bicycle because there was a perception prior to this period that bicycles were somehow unsafe. Right, which may have been true. And another crucial development had to do with the fact that these new bikes had inflated tires, pneumatically inflated tires, which makes the ride much more comfortable, naturally. And so during the 1890s, we have this surge in popular consumption of bicycles that, on one hand, is the result of, a, you know, technological advancement, we can call it, or a new technology that enables people to do new things. But it also takes on the form of a craze, as we've been saying, something that goes beyond the material realm and the material value of the bicycle, and then it takes on a certain cultural purchase. The technological object itself acquires... A sort of mystical status, you could say. Um, people view it with a, a, a strange kind of reverence in some cases where uh, if it's if it's insulted or belittled, you even feel a bit offended. You right. see that now in the, in the current bike craze. There's exactly. a lot of people who are very sensitive about their attachment to bicycles. Right. When I tell my friends in D.C., you know, I see how it's great for getting around, but I feel a little unsafe on a bicycle on some of the streets in D.C. They get a little indignant. They identify with the technology they're participating in. And you can imagine this feeling being present in a lot of the historical cases where your access to a technology you felt was uh, a product of your membership in a culture and hence a part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And one manifestation we see of this is uh, the rise in fascination with bicycle races. Or people would gather in a public space and watch others compete with each other on bicycles. And in fact, we'll be referring to these uh, documents from the Ottoman archives on bicycles throughout the podcast. We see that even in the 1890s already, this phenomenon that arose in the United States and Europe of racing bicycles started to spread to the Ottoman Empire with uh, bicycle races being held in Istanbul and other major centers such as Salonik. And I think an interesting uh, point of inquiry that we don't have time to talk about too much is the transfer of the bicycle from an object of leisure to an object of serious sport and what that means. What What is uh, the, the role of a serious sport in a society versus uh, a toy or a game? And how does this impact that piece of technology's role as a uh, 
point of pride for the nation or the state that it's associated sort of with. And so in moving to the second half of this discussion about the, the book that we mentioned, Across Asia on a Bicycle, we're going to touch on some of these themes, the intersection of national identity, also a sort of enlightenment, man of enlightenment identity and its uh, relationship with technology operating in a context of a quote-unquote othered space, which is the Ottoman Empire. So, Dan, why don't you introduce this uh, travel narrative that you've been working with about bicycles? What makes this piece particular with respect to the other common travel writing of the time, and which formally is very similar, is its constant reference to this piece of technology, the bike, which forms not only the mode of transportation, but a theme in the interactions with the people that were encountered in the travel, and also a platform from which the two travelers relate their own culture to the one that they're experiencing. Right, and we have the picture on the website. You'll see it's the first picture we've posted. We have our two travelers. They're recent American University graduates, Thomas Gaskell Allen Jr. and William Louis Sachtleben, who traveled, in fact, not just through the Ottoman Empire, as we've said, but from Constantinople, basically, to China on their bicycles. And we have this picture that was taken of them in China. And as we can see, they're, they're wearing their bicycle outfits, very proudly displaying some kind of Chinese text that they've acquired. And alongside that, they're carrying an American flag. Although they claim to not have been moved by the notion that they could be breaking a record in bicycle travel, it seems like that is a point that they return to. And it makes sense within the context of the time there were there was this phenomenon of record breaking and trying to achieve more than had been previously achieved through technology. Right. We see this harmony between testing the limits of human ingenuity through technology and testing the limits of the human body. Actually, some of the documents that I've encountered in the Ottoman archives regarding bicycles are from the U.S. ambassador during the 1890s, who's encouraging Sultan Abdul Hamid II to investigate this new technology, uh, of course, for use in the army, and, and etc., and referring to these recent long-range bicycle journeys completed in a matter of days between Chicago and New York that were occurring within the context of the Chicago World's Fair, which as we've discussed in a previous podcast with Alma Heckman, was an arena within which different groups could display their modernity and their civilization uh, sort of in material form. So Dan, you mentioned in introducing this book that we have these two protagonists, the travelers, but the real protagonist of the travel narrative, especially if we look at the images associated with the travel narrative, is the, is bicycle. the bicycle. That's right. As I said, the bicycle is the platform that is returned to throughout the entire travel narrative. And one of the more interesting recurring themes in the book is the interaction between the locals in the small villages and the bicycle itself, how these people reacted to seeing this thing which they had never seen before, and interestingly, how the writers themselves, the travelers, narrativize that interaction. Right. This is the bicycle as spectacle. And it's at the center of the narrative. And of course, we understand it as an extension of the identity of the protagonist. It's, it's not just an actor in its own right, but 
the bicycle is functioning as an extra human extension of these, uh, you know, male egos, we can really call them, without getting too Freudian about the whole thing. And you could also similarly say that it's a sublimated object. It's a, a physical material object that becomes something mystified in the eyes of others. Whether the locals did or didn't actually feel this way, this was the, the reading of their interaction with the bikes that the travelers themselves had. One example, and one which they themselves say was typical of their reception in most places, was that of their entry to Kersher. And, and Kersher is uh, the central Anatolian region that even for our listeners in modern Turkey, probably many of them have not been to Kersher. Even this is, this is kind of off the beaten path. Um, for, for most travelers. And this is this is one of the things that the bicycle was supposed to enable, right? The ability to access places that were too remote otherwise to be you know, accessed by conventional means. In their description of their approach to the city, they note people coming out on horses, challenging them to races, uh, a large commotion, a mob forming, uh, the local officials demanding that they dismount as if they were riding horses. And... Repeatedly, we hear them talk about the mob chanting and saying things like, the devil's carts have come. What's crucially fascinating about this is the way that they interpret their reception with respect to the spectacle of their bicycle. Right, there's this sense that the locals are ignorant for viewing this technology as a threat. That's right. It's viewed with what they consider a superstitious attitude that they, as the riders of these bicycles, are associated with devils and uh, witchcraft, you might say. And, uh, of course, while this particular incident is not documented in the archives, we do have examples from Ottoman Istanbul, from Beolu area in particular, where bicycles did indeed um, garner the suspicion of Ottoman author- authorities, of course, not due to their supernatural aspects per se but because they provided but because they presented a kind of obstructions in the road and prevented the passage normal passage of carts and pedestrians you know they were disruptive in a sense the scene in Kursair is especially interesting as they list off the inventory of the technologies they brought along with them a fountain pen a map a camera and they explain how those things were interpreted by the locals with a sort of condescending tone, they note that villagers were were confused by the fountain pen and the map, having never encountered something that could, that could, as they say, tell you where you were without having been there before. The camera to the villagers was, according to the travelers, a black box. Though they had an idea of what telescopes were, they were absolutely mystified by this camera. What I find particularly fascinating about this point comes from the fact that I find it unlikely, given the technological understanding of the time, of cameras and technologies, that these two travelers had a firm or deep understanding of how a camera worked, for example. They might know the basic principles, but it's unlikely that they could explain them in an intuitively graspable way to a person who spoke their language, for example. And and moreover, the camera would have been an object of fascination back home in America as well. It is an object of fascination. It's technological right. curiosity. But here it's interpreted in terms of a sort of cultural superiority. 
So this leads me to what I think is one of the most interesting questions that this book opens up, which is, again, what licenses an individual to have authority over technology? Is it the case that it's only necessary that a member of your national group or community understands the technology for you to be able to express condescension at someone else who doesn't understand it? If you come from a nation where your technology is common, does this give you the license to ridicule any sense of surprise shown by people who haven't experienced it? Or if there are other conditions that lead to this sense of possession of technology, how can we characterize them? And of course, if we can direct our listeners very briefly to our images, which are quite fascinating, a uh, perfectly fine example of sort of the limitations of uh, these uh, authors' own self-consciousness is this image where they're hollowing out these flat breads that they've apparently never seen before and uh, wrapping them around their necks in order to eat them while they're riding on their bicycles. So on one hand, they mock Turkish villagers for being suspicious or uh, enthralled with the novelty. The, the novelty of the bicycle. And on the other hand, they display themselves being overtaken by the novelty of flat bread. Right. Which would have appeared absurd for the uh, onlookers, for example. Right. And always this uh, approach to novelty is accompanied with a healthy dose of condescension. For example, about bread, they say... It's a cooked bran flour paste, which has the thinness, consistency, and almost the taste of blotting paper. Right. This, this, this condescension and, and this hubris is expressed elsewhere in an image with the caption, a contrast. Dan, could you talk a little bit about this image? So here, one of the travelers standing with his, with his bikes looks on as two women pass on donkeys, and they are ostensibly gazing with fascination at the bikes while he gazes back at them. And, and the attitude conveyed in just the simple caption, a contrast, like, this is us, bikes, this is them, donkeys. Tradition and modernity laid out in a very simple context. I mean, here it's, it's interesting to talk about how these images from the account, most of them are sketches that are ostensibly based on photographs that the men took, but it has a little idealized aspect to it. And I think many of the images have a sort of implicit position that they convey about juxtaposing the modernity of the travelers and their technological advancement against this backdrop of simple and raw society that they're traveling through. One of the reasons these kinds of images juxtaposing technology with what a Westerner, for example, might consider tradition, one of the, one of the reasons that this is so compelling is maybe that it allows us to view our technology with a sort of historical perspective. And as you probably know, Walter Benjamin refers to this as a dialectical image, something that in one image exposes, exposes the historicity of a moment and allows the viewer to understand his position in a temporal space. Right, and we have a number of these images on the website. We won't be able to talk about all of them, but they all, as we've been saying, convey this sense of hubris. Contrast, hubris. 
And and one image that I do want to talk about, which also has to do with hubris, but has nothing to do with bicycles, is this image of the this image of one of the men sort of in a in a position of power over a Qadi or a, an Islamic scholar who is right. holding a copy of the Quran. Here is where that technology transfers into the realm of a broader sort of power. Could you talk about this? So within his own social context, this man must obviously wield quite a bit of social capital. He must be influential in his community. He certainly has a, a bit of authority over other people. The Qadi is the local expert on Islamic law for all intents and purposes, Islamic learning. Right. And so it's interesting that a foreign traveler with a piece of technology, which may or may not be of his design, in this case it's certainly not, can, can in a sense, usurp this social capital and dethrone it. And at, le- at least in his own mind. And it's interesting that in the, the account, they refer to the man as sort of a serious man of learning, but are like, but we found his, um, his intellectual capacities to be like mediocre, essentially. Right. They judged him with respect to a framework of rational thinking, and they found him lacking by those standards. Something we often encounter in Western accounts of travel in the East is a simultaneous reverence for the true authentic culture that they're experiencing alongside an innate sort of uh, condescension and dismissal of its primitiveness. We see that very clearly in their discussion of the lower class Anatolian peasants that they encounter. One quote that I thought was interesting the poorer, the more ignorant a Turk is, the better he seems to be. As he gets money and power, he becomes contaminated by Western civilization. He deteriorates. In the lowest classes, I've sometimes found truth, honesty, and gratitude. So here we can see, obviously, this sense of reverence for authenticity and the, the notion that Western civilization is actually a corrupting influence, which, within the same paragraph, is is seemingly contradicted flat out by their dismissal of technology, architecture, food, customs. Right, and we see how, as Edward Said and those who have followed him have uh, argued with the study of Orientalism that the these uh, encounters with quote-unquote others, it's really all about how the speaker is self-identifying. And, and, and this is where we have to be a little bit nuanced in our reading of society it's not always that orientalism presents a negative depiction in the sense of a value judgment about the east but it is a negative in the sense that it's the opposite of the positive image like in the photographic sense so it's always as we said a contrast right and the westerner constructs his image of himself against the backdrop of this foreign other and we can see that in this narrative itself Now, another illustration of the sort of recursive feedback mechanism that allows this self-perception to to persist is the fact that the uh, poor, lower-class people that they encountered on their travels would often accost them as doctor, Hakim. They claim, mostly because of the missionary work that had preceded them, which had led to 
these people having no encounters with Westerners other than doctors. And the assumption, therefore, that all foreigners have this high level of sophisticated medical training and understanding. And here, the gaze is turned around. For a moment, they see how, you know, within a technological context, their culture is viewed by the local population. And what's interesting is they say, oh, sorry, we're not physicians. We just have bikes. So on one hand, we have a, a, a particular form of knowledge that is coveted by the inhabitants of the regions they're passing through, i.e. medicine. And these guys are all about showing off their, their bicycles. While they distance themselves, of course, from the role of doctors, they do try to find a position to occupy within a sort of hierarchy of technological knowledge, and they position themselves above the average Turk, the average Anatolian subject who has only what they feel is folk science notions like the idea that running water is purified and other things like that. And this opens up maybe a good way to summarize our discussion, which is that in a non-trivial way, personal identity is constructed by what technologies we feel we have authority over and where we fit into a sort of knowledge hierarchy. We can see this in our own society across many different disciplines and careers. We see experts being called upon to answer questions about policies, for example, in, in a technocratic regime or in a courtroom. We see expert witnesses called in because of their supposed access and authority over a technology. We grant them a position in the hierarchy. In this travel account, we see two men trying to navigate a hierarchy that they don't fully understand, but which they assume is across the board beneath them and they position themselves on the top of this hierarchy and in doing so build a personal identity of dominance and control over everyone they encounter and what i like about what you've done here today is that while usually these accounts are read within the framework of orientalism and the quote-unquote east-west encounter and critiquing it from that angle which we've done here a little bit today You've also opened up a space within which we can think about technology uh, insofar, insofar as it plays a role more broadly in our understanding of human psychology and identification. Um, of course, we didn't talk so much about gender here, but also we, we can see how the bicycle is uh, an extension of these travelers' masculinity as well. And they do some gendered commentary vis-a-vis -vis like, you know, the position of Anatolian women. That's right. Et but also that the bicycle is like a, a manly achievement. Right. That th and, and this we see this later in their journey as, they, journey as they get farther east. We actually have this picture of them riding across a river with their bicycle being carried by a Turkish Zaptia uh, on a horse. And, and they're, they're en route to climbing Mount Ararat, which is, is, is an enormous mountain. And sort of mountain climbing is the uh, one, one such symbol of, quote unquote, male achievement. Right. And so th using the lens of technology, I think you've broadened the um, ways within which travel narratives, such as across Asia on a bicycle, on the surface, a typical Orientals travel account, you've broadened the ways in which we can use these sources as subjects of uh, 
socio-historical inquiry. I think one of the ways we can always look a little deeper into travel narratives is trying to find the ways in which the writers or the travelers are building an identity for themselves within a foreign context and trying to position themselves, trying to make sense of who they are and where they stand within this, what could otherwise be threatening or hostile environment of otherness. Um, and the role of technology in granting power in these kinds of situations is something that we can see throughout the, the history of travel narratives. If you look carefully, all sorts, all sorts of historical accounts of travelers encountering civilizations that they aren't familiar with and foreign societies have a prominent role for technological imbalance or the mystifying power of technology mm -hmm. in asserting the dominance of the individual, not just the dominance of the state who may be intervening or a colonial power, but mm -hmm. the man himself on the ground in the foreign society actually internalizes the power. And again, we you mentioned, man, we do have to wonder what aspects of this phenomenon are can be universalized or generalized and what aspects of this are tied to, to things like a particular form of masculinity. Right. How does a female traveler function in the same situation? We can sort of right. draw contrast there as well. And I think technology, even now, is strongly gendered. It's something that we always view through a sort of masculine lens, especially when we are associating technological achievement with a group, with a, with a nation. It almost always has a gendered aspect. Well, Dan, as I've said, you've you've opened up an area for further inquiry as we continue our series on the history of science insofar as it relates to the Ottoman Empire. And I want to thank you. I know that, you know, sort of as you're trying to understand yourself on your own journey into history, I know you're not a historian by training, more of, more of a, a scientist. I'd, we always stick you in the position of our uh, sort of resident scientist on the Ottoman History Podcast, and I'm glad you've been with us today and or helped us flesh out some of these things from a, and bring your training from outside the humanities to weigh in a little on a topic that's very interesting for people who are studying the humanities and interested in the history of Turkey and the modern Middle East. So I appreciate that. Thanks a lot. I got a lot out of this, and I do always enjoy trying to branch out into fields I'm not really familiar with and maybe form connections that I wasn't otherwise aware of. Well, we look forward to doing so in future podcasts. Uh, and for those who want to know more about this, we've got a little article in our blog, Tosu's Evrak, that Dan has written up for us talking about this travel narrative. You can actually download the entire PDF. It is copyright free, formerly available on Google. I believe no longer available on Google, but we're going to provide it for you guys. You also can get some of those images that we've referred to in the podcast and find our bibliography. You can leave your comments and questions. That's all for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care.